Well, good morning, church. It's really, really good to be back here at Central. And as Pastor Rob mentioned here a few years ago, met many of you, uh, became friends. And then last year, we're here for District Assembly. So thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be here. I was thinking about it this morning. You know, Pastor Rob is my very best Wolverines, Tigers fan friend. <laughs> Did you know he was a fan of the Wolverines? Uh, yeah, I, I thought you might know that. And, but seriously, Rob and Carla are really dear friends of Christy and I. Uh, you may not know, but Rob and Carla followed us at one of the churches we pastored in Kansas City. We became really good friends. And I'm so thankful for how God is using Pastor Rob in this place, in this season. Would you agree with me that God's given you a wonderful pastor? He's down here going like this, he's blushing. And by the way, happy Easter. Some of you are saying, boy, maybe you didn't realize Easter was last week, but did you see the white up on the cross? That means that Easter is not just a day, Easter is a season. Easter is a season of the church year that we are going to, for the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about the fact that Christ is risen. And Christy and I were at the garden tomb just outside of Jerusalem about two months ago, and we looked inside, and guess what? He's still not there. The tomb is still empty, Jesus is alive, and the presence of Jesus is with us in this moment right now. And so we're going to talk about Easter again today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John, the Gospel of John. And we're going to be reading chapter 3 and verse 16. John 3, 16. You say, I don't need my Bible for that one. Well, that's okay. I'm glad some of you have this verse memorized, but I also want you to see the context of what John chapter 3 is about. Hear now the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal abundant life. This is God's word for us today. Larry, he grew up in a Christian home. He was the kind of kid that got those perfect Sunday school attendance records. He was the king of camp in junior high. Uh, He eventually went to a Christian college where he seemed to be doing very well. And everybody liked Larry. Larry was just a nice person. He was compassionate. He was an encourager. He was like one of those guys who was a friend to friendless people. But Larry was fighting some internal battles that nobody but he and God knew about. And so when Larry left college, he entered into a very promiscuous lifestyle. When his family found out what he was doing, his family cut off contact from him. Even most of his friends from college disassociated themselves from Larry. And Larry even began to assume that, well, maybe God has turned his back on me. 
A few years went by and Larry discovered that he had contracted HIV. And when his partner found out, he left him immediately. And Larry was devastated. He felt utterly abandoned. He had no one. He did not know where to turn. Well, this was back in the early 1980s. And there was a medical research group in California that was developing a new drug to try and fight the HIV virus. And, and so he moved there to join that group. But after a couple of months of treatment, the word from the researchers came back and they said to him, Larry, we're sorry, but what we thought was going to help you isn't really helping you at all. And there's nothing more that we can do. Not long after that, Larry developed full-blown AIDS. He deteriorated really quickly, and the research hospital sent him home to die in his own bed. And one night, Larry had a terrible nightmare. It was a nightmare about dying, and he woke up, and he was frightened and afraid. And he didn't know what to do. But lying in his bed there, he remembered that the speaker at one of his youth camps was now pastoring right there in his city. And so he called his sister and he said, could you ask Pastor Norm to come and talk to me? Well, she called him and Pastor Norm, who's also my good friend, went and talked to Larry. Norm said he walked into a very simple room and there was Larry lying on his bed. And even though he was still a fairly young man, he was already so weak that he couldn't even set up. They exchanged some greetings, and my pastor friend sat right there on the edge of the bed, and they began a casual conversation until finally they had run out of things to talk about. There's a few moments of awkward silence, when finally Larry looked back up at my friend, and with these ashen eyes, he asked, Pastor Norm, tell me something. What do people like you think about people like me? And there was a long pause. And then my pastor friend answered him, and I think very profoundly. He said, the important question, Larry, is not what I think about you. And it's not even what everybody else thinks about you. The most important question is, what does God think about you? And I think that's a really important question. In fact, if I could redirect that question for us here today, I would frame it something like this. What does God think about people like us? And I think that's an important question to ask because there's lots and lots of views out there about what God is really like. Maybe some of you have seen that iPhone app. It's called Pocket God. I looked it up this morning at breakfast, and here's how the game is described in iTunes. It says, what kind of God would you be, benevolent or vengeful? Play Pocket God and discover the answer within yourself. On a remote island, you are the all-powerful God, small g that rules over the primitive islanders. You can bring new life and you can take it away just as quickly. That's how it describes the game. It's got some game options it described. It says you can throw islanders into volcanoes. You can use islanders as shark bait. 
You can create earthquakes to destroy the islander's village. That's what it all said right there in the iPhone app. And I, I know it's just a game, but the designers of this game seem to think that players only want to play the role of a vengeful God, which must also mean that they think that's the only kind of God there really is. They can't imagine a God who would be real that's not that way. And I'll be honest with you, if, if I were left to my own devices, apart from God's Word and apart from what we know, if I were to try to figure out the majesty and the mystery of a transcendent God, I might come up with the very same conclusions. And yet, as I understand more and more about the person and the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, I have got to take a different look at God. Why? Because very frankly, the person of Jesus, who Jesus is, surpasses any other view of God we may have because the Bible says Jesus reveals God's true character. And nothing more clearly reveals God's character than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, you know John 3.16. It's on football stadiums. You probably, you know, memorized that when you were in Sunday school. So you know the verse. But I want to ask you a basic question. Who was the person who used first the words of John 3.16? Who said them? Jesus said them. In fact, in John chapter 3, Jesus was having a conversation with a man whose name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a very prestigious and respected religious person from Jerusalem, and he very well believed that Jesus had been sent from God, that he was a prophet from God, and he was being drawn to him. But because of his, his kind of professional status, he couldn't come to Jesus during the day, so he came to Jesus at night. And during the conversation Nicodemus was having with Jesus, Jesus said to him, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they have been born again or to be born from above. And Nicodemus was a learned man, and he did, but he didn't understand it, and so Jesus explained his purpose for coming into the world. Jesus' self-proclaimed reason for coming into the world for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, it's important who spoke those words, but it's also important because of what it says to us about God. Despite all the wonderful attributes about the nature and the character of God, his omnipotence, his power, his omnipresence, there are so many aspects of the nature of God. And I just want to say this to you. No matter what you may believe about God, no matter how true your belief about God may be, you do understand that's just a drop in the ocean of the immense greatness of who God really is. Our best understanding is just a very small glimpse of the greatness of God. But what the Bible says to us from beginning to end, and Jesus himself says over and over again, is that the character in the heart of God is ultimately and finally love. Who is God? God is love. And that it was his love for us and his love for the whole world that prompted him to send Jesus. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not pocket God. 
He is not vengeful. He is not random. He is not unpredictable. Now, God is mysterious. I understand that. God's beyond our comprehension. But God also has a constant and predictable nature that does not waver. And Jesus tells us what that is, his love. Now, you, think, you say, well, that, is that the only time that Jesus speaks about God's love? Well, no, it isn't because there's many other instances and primarily through the stories that Jesus used to tell. His stories were called parables. Let me give you one of his stories. He says, the love of God is like a shepherd. And this shepherd had 100 sheep, but one of the sheep got out, leaving him 99 still safe in the fold. But you know what this heart the heart of this shepherd did? Out of love, he went pursuing and seeking out that one lost sheep until he found that sheep, and then he put it over his shoulders and he ran back home, but he didn't stop then. When he got back to the village, he threw a party. My one lost sheep is found. And Jesus said, that's the way God loves us. He keeps pursuing his lost sheep. And then he told another story. You remember the second story? He said, the love of God, Jesus said this, is like a woman who lost her most valuable possession and she turned her house upside down until she finally found that one coin that she valued so much. But it's not over. Not only did she rejoice, but then she threw a party, probably spent as much as the coin was worth, invited all of her neighbors together for a party and said, celebrate with me. I found my lost possession. And Jesus said, that's the way God loves us. He turns the house upside down until he finds us. And then Jesus told the most famous story. He said, the love of God is like a waiting father. He's sitting on the porch and he's looking down the road, hoping and praying his wayward son will come home. And when he sees him coming down the road broken, he doesn't wait for him to get to the house. No, he he jumps up from his chair. He runs to his son, meets him in the middle of the road so he doesn't have to face the village. And then he not only throws his arms around him, but he puts a robe on him. He puts a ring on him. He puts shoes on his feet. And then he runs back to the village and says, come with me. We're going to have a feast and celebrate because my lost son has come home. And Jesus said, that's the way God loves us. He's a waiting father that keeps running after us. Because from cover to cover, the Bible drips with the love of a seeking and saving God who's reckless with desire to get his family back. A God who will stop at nothing, even if it means he has to send his own son to die for our sins so that we could be reclaimed into his family. But here's the other thing. Jesus doesn't just tell us stories about God's love. Jesus came to demonstrate God's love. So that when you see the cross of Jesus Christ, it is not a terrible accident in human history. This is not a tragedy. It's the ultimate expression of what God thinks about a people like us. And when you look at a cross kind of love, this isn't sappy love, this isn't sentimental love, this is about a suffering, sacrificial love that does for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is bring us back to God and pay the price for our redemption. We couldn't do that for ourselves. 
The Apostle Paul says it this way, the reason we couldn't come back to God is that we were dead in our sins, meaning we were dead to God. We didn't even have the capacity to come to God. But when we couldn't come to him, God did something for us. He came to where we were through his one and his only son. And that's why we say God's love is also comparable to God's grace. Because you can't earn grace, there's no compensation for good behavior. Grace is a free gift from God that we don't deserve and we don't take credit for. And so when Jesus took our sins on the cross, it was the ultimate expression of God's sacrificial saving love. And that was the message of Good Friday. But that was Good Friday. And that's where Easter comes in. Because if the cross is the ultimate expression of God's love, then the resurrection is the ultimate expression of God's power. And you can't have one of those without the other. You can't have God's love minus God's power. So Good Friday's It Is Finished needs Easter mornings He Is Risen. Because when God raised Jesus from the dead, you know he wasn't just washing your sins away. He was providing a power that could change your life. So God is saving us from death, yes, but he's also raising us to a new life in Jesus. God is offering you forgiveness on the cross, but his resurrection gives you power to change your life. So God's love offers restoration and God's power enables transformation. Sometimes people get stuck in the middle. They they want the forgiveness, but they don't know how the change is going to happen. They want the restoration to God, but they don't believe that God's really going to do a transformation in their lives. Good Friday needs Easter, and Easter needs Good Friday. It's one thing for you to know that in your head, intellectually, but it's a whole other thing for you to believe that it's true about you. I told you earlier that Pastor Rob and I pastored in Kansas City, and I remember when we were pastoring there that Christy's parents came for a visit. That's my wife, Christy, and we decided we were going to take them to a Royals game. Now, for those of you who are Tigers fans, I'm a Royals fan. We can commiserate after the service if you want to. But normally, if you tried to get a Royals ticket, it's no big deal. You can get them almost anywhere that you want, except I think that night the Yankees were in town, and so we had to buy upper-level seats way up in the nosebleed section. Somebody told me one time there's not a bad seat in Royal Stadium. That's absolutely not true. (laughs) I mean, we were so high up in that stadium that the only reason I knew something good was happening on the field was when the crowd would roar, because I couldn't even see the, the field. The view was bad. But who was in front of me was even worse. Because I was sitting directly behind a man who personified the single best definition of vulgar that I've ever seen in my life. He sat right there in front of me, spread out like a red water balloon. And it wasn't just his physical condition. It didn't even have to do with that. It was his attitude. It was like he had two major talents, drinking beer and swearing. And I knew he was drinking beer because he was sharing it with everybody around him. He was sloshing it all over my feet and my pants, and everybody within 10 bleachers was being thrown beer on. 
and he was sharing his language very loudly. And he had quite a vocabulary. To this day, I still have no idea what some of the words he was using meant. And when he got tired of drinking and swearing, which was rare, he would give a long, wet belch for everybody to hear. He was drunk, he was loud, he was obnoxious, he was smelly. And I sat there trying to ignore him, but being compelled to watch him. And as I watched that man for the next seven or eight innings, something happened to me. And I began to think about something else. For some strange reason, and I think it might have been God, what came to my mind was that 20 years before, my family had left Bethany, Oklahoma, which was my very safe place, and we moved to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. And I remember it so well because it wasn't just a move from one state to another. It was a move into one of the most uncertain and terrible years of my life. It's kind of hard to say that sixth and seventh grade could be the worst years of your life, but they were. I can remember them vividly. My whole world got turned upside down. My new school was a big school. The junior high had almost a thousand people. I knew absolutely no one. I had no friends. And to make matters worse, I was being bullied almost every day. I was not a rising star. I had kind of one of those soup bowl haircuts. If you don't know what that is, it just means my mom would just cut a big circle around my hair. And I had on these dark glasses that look like those protective goggles you use in shop class. And when you put the bad haircut and that's terrible glasses together, it made me look like, you know, a 10-year-old Bill Gates. I was completely lost socially. I, I wanted to be popular but I knew that wasn't going to happen, so I thought, well, maybe I can settle for not being liked if I can just stop being bullied every day. I wanted to be accepted by the people around me in the worst way, but I especially, I especially wanted to be part of the in crowd, and the really in crowd, the really popular crowd were the athletes. So I longed to just hang with the movers and the shakers and the jump shooters of Scotts Bluff Junior High. But unfortunately, my coordination hadn't kept up with the length of my feet, so it didn't appear that I was gonna slink with the junior high jump shooters soon. That lack of acceptance and that constant teasing became more than I could bear. And so I started faking sick so I wouldn't have to go to school. I started making up stories about why I couldn't go to class to my parents. Bottom line was this, I was almost 11 years old, but I was too ashamed to tell my parents that nobody liked me. I was lonely, I was isolated, I was miserable. And this is how miserable I was. I was so miserable, I made a near fatal mistake. I broke down and I cried during sixth grade English class. Now in case you didn't know it, there's kind of a rule for sixth grade boys. We don't cry. That's against all rules of machoism. You get thrown out of the testosterone club if you cry as a sixth grader. It took me two years to get over that nearly fatal mistake. But it was just a terrible time. And it was funny that all of those memories were flooding back to me right there at that Royals game. And it got me to thinking about God's love and God's power. I have no idea what 
made me think of that except to say I started thinking about my Sunday school classes where they would cut out these little paper Jesuses with these outstretched hands and our teacher would tell us about the mammoth love of God. But now I was being faced with an even bigger problem because everything that I thought was wrong with humanity was now sprawled out in front of me, a man who could swear easier than he could breathe. And I had to ask myself, can God love this man? Could God change this man? And make no mistake about it, there was nothing likable about him. But now there was even a deeper problem for me because this man that was within 15 bleacher rows of everybody who couldn't stand him, I was reminded of somebody. You know what I began to think about? The question took a nasty turn because now I was wondering not just could God love this man, but could God love a five foot two, 95 pound kid with glasses who couldn't slam dunk a basketball? and who committed the unpardonable sin of crying in sixth grade English class. And this thought actually came to me. Would God even want me? And I have to tell you something, by the end of that game, I'd come to the realization that I'd found so hard to believe when I was 11, that not only did God love him, but that God loved me and he always had and it never had anything to do with who I was it always had to do with who he was and somehow it didn't matter anymore how many times the guy in the red shirt belched or how many times I double dribbled in junior high what mattered was that this God through his saving sacrificial son loved both of us, regardless of our performance. And I want to tell someone here this morning, you really need to hear this. God's love for you is not dependent on how you look or how you think or how you act, and it never has. Even if you think how you look and how you act is good, it's still not about you. Because no matter what you do, no matter how far you fall, no matter how ugly you become in your own eyes, God has a relentless, unquenchable love for you that will never change. You want to know how I know that's true? Jesus' cross proves that. But listen, and listen carefully. God's love is also powerful enough to change you. And Christ's resurrection proves that. Good Friday is love without condition, but Easter is power without limit. What does God think about a person like you? I've got really good news. He loves you. And his power can change you.